Hey, this is episode two. It's the first episode where I really begin reading the book. Episode one is the preface to the book and some other comments that I made. So if you just want to start with the beginning of the book, feel free to start here. You won't hurt my feelings much. A month in the country. For Kathy and for Sally, farewell. A novel, a small tale, generally of love. Dr. Johnson's Dictionary. Now for a breath I tarry, nor yet disperse apart. Take my hand quick and tell me, what have you in your heart? A. E. Hausman. She comes not when noon is on the roses, too bright as day. She comes not to the soul till it reposes from work and play. But when night is on the hills and the great voices roll in from sea, by starlight and by candlelight and dreamlight, she comes to me. Herbert Trench Forward. During any prolonged activity, one tends to forget original intentions. But I believe that when making a start on a month in the country, my idea was to write an easygoing story, a rural idyll along the lines of Thomas Hardy's Under the Greenwood Tree. And, to establish the right tone of voice to tell such a story, I wanted its narrator to look back regretfully across 40 or 50 years, but, recalling a time irrecoverably lost, still feel a tug at the heart. And I wanted it to ring true. So I set its background up in the North Riding on the Valley of Mowbray, where my folks had lived for many generations and where, in the plow horse and candle-to-bed age, I grew up in a household like that of the Ellerbeck family. Novel writing can be a cold-blooded business. One uses whatever happens to be lying around in memory and employs it to suit one's ends. The visit to the dying girl, a first sermon, the Sunday school treat, a day in a harvest field, and much more happened between the Pennine Moors and the Yorkshire Wolds. But the church in the fields is in Northamptonshire, its churchyard in Norfolk, its vicarage London, all's grist that comes to the mill. Then, again, during the months whilst one is writing about the past, a story is colored by what presently is happening to its writer. So, imperceptibly, the tone of voice changes, original intentions slip away, and I found myself looking through another window at a darker landscape inhabited by neither the present nor the past. J.L. Carr When the train stopped, I stumbled out, nudging and kicking the kit bag before me. Back down the platform, someone was calling despairingly, Ox Godby! Ox Godby! No one offered a hand, so I climbed back into the compartment, stumbling over ankles and feet to get at the fish bass on the rack and my folding camp bed under the seat. If this was a fair sample of northerners, then this was enemy country, so I wasn't too careful where I put my boots. I heard one chap draw in his breath and another grunt. Neither spoke. Then the guard whistled, the train jerked forward a couple of paces, and stopped. This was enough to goad the old man in the near side corner to half lower his window. "'Tis going to get red and soaked down to the skin, mister, he said, and shut the window in my face. Then the engine blew up a splendid plume of steam and shuffled off, a row of faces staring woodenly at me. And I was alone on the platform, arranging my pack, taking a last look at a map, pushing it into my top coat pocket, levering it out again to spill my ticket on the station master's boots, wishing I'd sewn on two missing buttons, 
hoping that it would stop raining until I had a roof over my head. A youngish girl, her face flattened against a window pane, stared at me from the station master's house. It must have been my coat which interested her. It was pre-war, about 1907, I should imagine. Wonderful material, the real stuff. Thick, herringbone tweed. It reached down to my ankles. Its original owner must have been a well-to-do giant. I saw that I was going to get very wet. My soles were letting in water already. The station master stepped back into his lamp room and said something, but I didn't follow his dialect. He seemed to understand this. I said that you could borrow my umbrella, he repeated in tolerable English. Where I'm going isn't too far, I said, according to the map, that is. The folk up there have an invincible curiosity. Where would that be? he asked. The the church, I said. I expect I shall dry out when I get there. Come on in and have your tea first, he countered. I've arranged to meet the vicar, I said. Oh, he said, I'm chapel. All the same, if you want for aught, send me word. I say, I hope it's there. He seemed to know why I'd come. Then I set off half-heartedly, as best I could, sheltering my spare clothes, which were in the straw fish bass, under my coat. The lane was where the map had said it ought to be, and there was the single building. It turned out to be a dilapidated farmhouse, its bit of front garden sulking behind a rusting cast-iron fence. A dog, an Airedale, dragged on its chain, howled half-heartedly, and ran for shelter again. After that, there was a couple of hen huts collapsing amongst nettles in the decaying orchard. The rain made a channel from my trilby down my neck, and one handle of the fish bass gave way. Then I turned the corner of a high hedge and was in an open pasture, and there was the church. It was an off-the-peg job. Evidently, there had been no medieval wool boom in these parts. This had been starveling country, every stone an extortion. The short chancel had an unusually shallow pitched roof. It must have been added a good hundred years after the main building, which had a steep pitch flattening into aisles. The tower was squat. Don't get the wrong impression. All in all, it was pleasant enough looking, and when I came closer, I saw that the masonry had been fettled up very nicely. Limestone ashlar, not rubble. Even between the buttresses, it had been beautifully cut, with only a hint of mortar, and near enough drowning as I was, I silently applauded the masons. The stone itself, just a tinge of pale yellow in it, magnesium, it must have been quarried near Tadcaster and ferried up the rivers. Don't let the detail irritate you. Even in those far-off days, I thought rather highly of myself as a stone fancier. The graveyard wall was in good repair, although, surprisingly, the narrow gate snack was smashed and it was held to by a loop of binder twine. There were some good 18th century headstones, their lichen-stained cherubs, hourglasses, and death's heads almost hidden by rank grass, nettle patches, and fool's parsley. I glimpsed two or three spikes of a family grave overwhelmed by briars. A gray cat peered out, glared hostilely at me, and was gone. Heaven knows what else was living there. Nowadays, it would have been a listed wildlife sanctuary. The rain gutters and downpipes, I couldn't help myself. I had to see if they were coping. So I threshed around the building. Not a gusher anywhere, not a trace of wash on the walls. Damps the doom of wall paintings. If there'd even been one green wall, I might as well have turned around there and then and let myself be washed back to the station. So I came back to the little porch, its stone sitting slabs polished by 500 years rubbing by backsides of funeral parties, faint from incense or remorse. 
I twisted the ring handle and pushed the door open. It squealed, a warning I was to be grateful for during the next few weeks. And there I was. By and large, it was what I'd guessed it might be. A stone-slabbed floor, three squat pillars on each side of the nave, two low aisles, and beyond, a chancel, as much as I could see of it, strenuously reorganized by some Tractarian incumbent. The roof was a good sound job. It might have been a ship's bottom wrong way up, and it looked as though there might be some interesting bosses. But of course it's the smell of places, always the smell, which makes an immediate impression, and this smell was damp hassocks. The scaffolding, as I'd been told by letter, was rigged up, filling the chancel's arch. There even was a ladder roped to it, and this I immediately climbed. Much can be said against the Reverend J.G. Keach. Alas, yes. But when he stands at the judgment seat, this also must be said in extenuation. He was businesslike, Lord. And an Englishman, this is a rare virtue. We could have done with a few depots supply majors like him in France. He had said that the scaffold would be ready, and it was. He had said that if I arrived on the quarter-past-seven train, he would meet me in the church at 7.30. And he did. And that was how I first saw him, his precise, business-like letters made flesh, standing in the doorway below me, seeing by wet footprints that I had come. Like a tracker dog, he looked along their trail to the foot of the ladder and then up it. "'Good evening, Mr. Birkin,' he said, and I climbed down. He was four or five years older than me, maybe thirty, a tall but not a strong-looking man, neatly turned out, pale-eyed, a cold, cooped-up look about him, and long after he must have become used to my face twitch, he still talked to someone behind my left shoulder. He went straight to business. About your living in the bell chamber. I am by no means terribly enthusiastic. Well, put it this way, the idea doesn't appeal to me. Surely I made it quite clear in our correspondence that Mossop must ring the bell each Sunday and that the rope passes through a hole in the floor. I hoped that you would make other arrangements, lodgings, or a room at the Shepherd's Arms. I muttered something about money. The stove, I said. What about the stove? You didn't say one way or the other. Can I use it? The, the, the rain, like today... My stammer put him off for a moment or two. It wasn't in the contract, he hedged, somehow managing to imply that neither were my stammer and face twitch. There was no mention of the stove initially. We have to think about our expenses, too, you know. You stated that you would be bringing a premise stove. In your first letter, this one. He took it from a pocket and pushed it at me, halfway down the second page. I might said something of... Fire, I countered, feeling rather pleased with myself. People don't realize that a stammerer has more time to deal with awkward questions, and I chased this up with, and don't forget the insurance. It, it's what they term using a building for unnatural activities, myths and paraffin, ancient timber, tin, tinder dry, sh surefire reason for putting up the premium i had an uncle who was an insurance collector unnatural activities told on him unnatural activities are bad enough in london but what they got up to in the country and up here in the north on top of that and it's well known that sin is blown up twice life-size when reporting to the clergy oh all right he said irritably i suppose you can use it if you say you must 
Then, like all people who give in too easily, he began to grub up a few restrictive clauses to recover face. But you must see that it's left in an acceptable state on Sundays, and naturally, at all times, you will remember that this is a consecrated place. You are a churchman. Oh, yes, I told him. He could rely on me. I saw him considering a possible ambiguity there, wondering what precisely he could rely on me for. From his expression, the worst. I didn't look like a churchman. Indeed, I looked like an unsuitable person likely to indulge in unnatural activities, who, against his advice, had been unnecessarily hired to uncover a wall painting he didn't want to see. And the sooner I got it done and buzzed off back to sin-stricken London, the better. It's very unusual, I said. Oh, the, the stove, I said. It's, it's unusual. Hopelessly out of date, he said. I'm going to have it out before winter. I have a catalog which illustrates a newly patented device with a twin boiler. Each boiler is enclosed in a water jacket, thus ensuring a steady, dependable outflow of heat, and it is guaranteed noiseless. He sounded a different man glibly boasting about that stove, even though it was no nearer Oxgobby than a catalog's page. This one either is excessively hot on occasions, red hot in point of fact, or else just keeping itself and no one else warm. And he gave it a resentful little kick. They glowered at one another like ancient enemies. He may well have said much more, but I didn't hear him because I was examining the stove with great attention. Some mechanical things fascinate me. Until that day, chiefly clocks, or anything run by clockwork. I had not considered the possibilities of coke stoves. There seemed to be several knobs and toggles for which I could see no purpose. Plainly, this damn big monster was going to provide me with several pleasurably instructive hours learning its foibles, and I hoped that he wouldn't manage to get it out until after I'd gone. Anyway, I gave the place he'd unfairly struck a propitiatory rub. Properly coaxed along, and with the sympathetic cooperation of Mossop, whoever he might be, it might have been employed with devastating effect to drive home a sermon on hellfire in the bottomless pit. It had a largish, oval discussion wreathed in cast-iron roses announcing that Bankdom Crowther Limited of Green Lane, Wasall, had manufactured it under patent 7564B. Well, now that was a pedigree to conjure with. More than a pedigree, a dynasty. Bankdom Crowther, the Habsburgs of the stove world. God knows what had happened to Bankdom, but I recalled reading in the Daily Mail that Crowther had cut his throat before jumping from Bridlington Pier to make an absolutely dead sure end. Nothing at all to do with his stoves. It was women and horses he didn't understand. So they didn't make them anymore. Shocking loss to those parts of the world that need warming by coke. In fact, the last one I'd seen was at Ypres. After a direct shell burst, the church had collapsed in on itself, but not the good old Bankdom Crowther. Marvelous tribute to the British workmen. The rain rattled on the roof. What is it you actually object to? I asked. It rumbles, he said impatiently, and disturbs the prayers and hymns. Empty-headed children seem to find it funny. And then there's the blowback, and when this, well, blows back, it erupts. Smoke, sparks, ash, yes, Ash, it showers ash on the congregation. I have had several complaints. During Evensong on January 15th this year, some even fell on the choir during the anthem. Not merely ash, ashes. I've had an expert from York to look at it. He charged us a guinea and said it wouldn't give us any more trouble. But within the month, it was added again. Just now it seems to have settled down. 
I know you can be relied on not to interfere with it. Plainly, he knew that he couldn't rely on me at all. I looked thoroughly unreliable. My top coat betrayed me. There was my face, the left side too. Like his Bankdom Crowther, it worked spasmodically. People like the Reverend J.G. Keach brought it on badly. It began at my left eyebrow and worked down to my mouth. I'd caught it at Passchendaele and wasn't the only one either. The medic said it might work off given time. Vinny going off hadn't helped. No, I told him he could rely on me and put on what I believed to be a reliable look. As one side of my face was being jerked in another, an unreliable direction, I must have looked frightening because he gave the stove another kick, an embarrassed one. Now, he said, to touch on a delicate topic. It apparently was going to be very delicate because he lowered his voice. Should you, when you feel a call of nature, you can use the hut in the northeast corner of the burial yard. You'll find it quite private, behind some lilac bushes. When last I looked, there were a few tools Mossop uses, but there's room enough. Kindly sprinkle a little Keatings once a week and shovel down some earth. It controls the flies. This must have been a very great effort for him, and there was an interval whilst he gathered reserves of goodwill for a further concession. The Sith, he said. The, the Sith? Mossop's Sith hangs from a nail there. It is rusting. The nail. Ah. Perhaps you should ensure that it is safely secured before... I thanked him, speculating if it was loss of life or only manhood he was concerned about. I told Moon he might use it too. What period do you suppose it to be? He couldn't possibly have meant the earth closet, so I supposed he meant the stove, and said, uh, About 1890, 1900, somewhere about that time? And wondered who Moon, my secret sharer, was. No, no, he exclaimed irritably. The mural, the wall painting. I told him I couldn't possibly know until I'd uncovered part of it. The costume would tell me within 10 or 20 years. Dress fashion didn't change all that quickly, even for the well-to-do. And as for the poor, they're scarcely altered at all. So I was hoping there would be one or two rich women. I said that Curdles went out and Snoods came in about 1340. But if he wanted me to guess, and guessing was all it would be, I'd say 14th century, after the Black Death, when surviving magnates were swallowing dead neighbors' estates at disaster prices and while fear for their own skins was still sweating out some of their profits. He began to say something quite irrelevant. Perhaps that was one reason why it was hard to keep listening to him. But there was a quality in his voice, too, which sapped the spirit, and possibly there was a great deal that I missed. I may have been brooding on Moon and Mossop's Democlean Seethe. When will you start? I picked up that. Well, here I was. I'd started. Surely that was plain enough. Then I heard him say, We shan't entertain any extras. The, there won't be any. There mustn't be any. You agreed to 25 guineas. 12 pounds, 10 shillings to be paid halfway, and 13 pounds, 15 shillings when finished and approved by the executors. I have your letter here. Why just the executors, I asked. Why not you t two? That was a shrewd thrust. Merely Miss Hebron's omission in the form of bequest, he lied bitterly. An oversight, of course. Of course, I thought. Naturally. But he struck back. However, for all intent and purpose, I represent the executors. I shan't mind if you touch it up, 
Any faint areas or even bits which may have disappeared, you can fill them in. So long as it's appropriate and tones in with the rest, I leave it to you, he added doubtfully. Incredible, I thought. Why are so many parsons like this? Must one excuse their defective sensibility toward their fellows because they are engrossed with God? And what about their wives? Can they possibly be like this at home? Of, of course, it, it, it isn't absolutely sure anything's there, I said, trying to sound matey. Of course there's something there. I may have a certain reservation, which I'm not prepared to discuss, about Miss Hebron, but she was no fool. She went up a ladder and scraped a patch until she found something. Good God, this was appalling. Scraped a patch? How big a patch, I moaned, sounding hysterical and staring wildly into the gloom above my chancel arch, my cheekbone clicking away like mad. One head, I believe, he said, certainly not more than two. A head? Perhaps two heads, probably half a dozen heads. She would have used sandpaper and a pan brush. I felt like running up the ladder and beating my head on the wall. Then she whitewashed it over again, he went on, quite oblivious to my distress. You might as well know, here and now, your employment has not my support. But no doubt you guessed this, reading between the lines of my letters. It would never have reached this stage, but for the unreasonable position taken up by her solicitors when I asked their agreement to an alternative use for your twenty-five guineas and their pig-headed refusal to pay out her £1,000 bequest to our fabric fund until the will's conditions were fulfilled. I gazed up into the darkness. However had she known it was there? But what if there was nothing except what was left of her heads? But if Keach, plainly a notable unbeliever, believed there was, then there must be. It occurred to me that perhaps he'd had a scrub, too. It will be in full view of the people, he complained. It? I asked. It? Whatever it is, he said curtly, looking up the ladder. It will distract attention from worship. Uh, only for a short time, I said. P people tire of color and shapes which stay in the s same place. And they always believe that they will have more time than they will have, and that someday they'll come on a week day and have a proper look. I should have said we. I'm just the same. Do you know I believe that he actually did consider the validity of this argument before rejecting it? Then he went. He hadn't told me who Moon was. Perhaps we should run into one another behind the lilac bushes.